This podcast is brought to you by RMA, the Risk Management Association. RMA's sole purpose is to advance the use of sound risk management principles in the financial services industry. Learn more at rmahq.org. Hi, my name is Jeff Ingber. I'm the Chief Advisor to GenPAC's Anti-Financial Crime Practice. I have over four decades of experience in the financial sector, including holding senior positions at Citibank, DTCC, and the New York Fed. In this podcast, I'll discuss the bulletin issued last July by the Office of the Controller of the Currency to inform OCC-supervised banks, which include the largest banks in the country, of its conception of sound fraud risk management principles. The OCC's pronouncement reinforces previously issued corporate governance and risk management principles and articulates a compendium of existing best practices. The wide range of actions expected by the OCC is striking. They include training, consumer education, complaint resolution, information security, real-time transaction analysis, behavioral analytics, third-party risk management, and human resource matters such as job breaks and background investigations for new employees. The OCC's announcement makes clear the overlap with Bank Secrecy Act measures and reinforces the logic of seeking synergies between AML and anti-fraud functions. It also emphasizes that there's no one-size-fits-all approach that's appropriate, as regulatory expectations are derived from the size and complexity of the institution. With all this in mind, imagine yourself as a risk manager tasked by a bank's senior management with ensuring adherence to all of these principles and integrating them into existing anti-fraud policies and processes. The mission is potentially overwhelming, but there are several practical measures that can help. One measure is integration of governance and developing a cross-functional governing board. As the OCC makes clear, proper governance is of paramount importance to controlling a bank's exposure to fraud. But even with a proactive board of directors and senior management engagement, it's still quite challenging to ensure implementation of organization-wide anti-fraud measures. That's because of the breadth of the OCC's principles combined with the stark fact that banks are complex, ever-changing organizations with a range of daily stresses that extend well beyond fraud. As a practical matter, fraud risk management can't be owned by any one department. Regulators often cite the importance of having each of the three lines of defense address key risk issues. What's also critical is unifying ownership organizationally across these three lines and focusing responsibility and oversight. A bank might have dozens of committees, subcommittees, and oversight boards that in some manner touch upon fraud. This creates the need for a dedicated anti-fraud committee or council comprised of senior representatives from key business areas plus functions such as IT, finance, compliance, risk, vendor management, HR, and audit. A bank's fraud risk management committee should have assigned to it specific key responsibilities that include defining fraud risk appetite and tolerance, reviewing anti-fraud policies, procedures, and controls, and addressing relevant regulatory findings. This committee needs to have the resources, stature, and authority appropriate to discharge its responsibilities including ready access to the bank's senior risk and audit committees. 
The second key measure is ensuring proper internal culture. Culture is a concept that's sometimes neglected because it's hard to define, measure, or quantify. But the need for strong culture should be intuitive, as fraud mitigation ultimately is addressed by people, not systems, and all staff must understand fraud risks and controls and view them as requiring active supervision. Of course, setting a proper culture begins with a clear commitment from the board of directors and senior management, known as tone at the top. Employees who view their managers as honest, ethical, respectful, and fair are more inclined to emulate that behavior. A positive working environment also will help avoid perceived wrongs that can be the motivation for fraud. Other important actions that foster in any fraud culture include mandatory employee fraud awareness training, establishing an easily used and understood whistleblowing process, setting up an effective fraud hotline, disseminating a clear written code of practice covering issues such as the acceptance of gifts, and consistently implementing disciplinary processes. The third measure reflects the fact that the OCC's list of expected detective and preventative controls is wide-ranging and exhaustive. How will implementation of each of the controls be tracked, much less assured? A useful step is to meticulously map them out, including designating which persons and areas are responsible for specific tasks. What's needed is a matrix that documents a bank's fraud risks matched against attendant controls. This should be done for each business process and then aggregated to create the basis for an overall risk appetite statement for fraud. Such a matrix would identify and evaluate existing control activities related to each fraud risk exposure and allow for the recording of the bank's response plan for each. In addition, it would record allegations of suspected fraud, investigations and outcomes, and monitoring plans. Ideally, there would be separate columns for identified fraud risks and schemes, a rating of their likelihood and significance, the people and departments responsible, existing anti-fraud controls and whether they are preventative or detective, and an assessment of the effectiveness of the controls, residual risks, and fraud risk response. The fourth measure stems from the fact that the OCC's principles cannot be implemented or demonstrated without the availability of a common view on issues, controls, and risks that's accessible and able to be monitored. A monthly fraud risk scorecard can be a useful tool in this regard. The key is to identify the critical metrics that quantify actual risk against established risk limits and thresholds. Examples include loss amounts, detection and recovery rates, false positives, call response times, and complaints. Attendant to identifying key metrics is determining what constitutes good, average, and poor performance for each metric and assigning a positive or negative point value based on importance. Periodically, you should weight each metric based on range, sum up the scores, and evaluate that score. Finally, I cannot uh, stress enough the importance of proper independent audit and review. The second and third lines of defense are key to ensuring a sound fraud risk management infrastructure, including evaluating processes, vulnerabilities, exposure, and effectiveness and design of controls. A part of this effort is analyzing data and assessing where fraud risk is highest, and then auditing or reviewing the OCC recommended controls in that area. And where fraud has occurred, 
they should review specifically how the detective and preventative controls failed and identify opportunities for improvement. These functions also should continuously consider the probability of further errors, fraud, or non-compliance across the organization. In sum, regarding the OCC's important new summary statement of fraud risk management principles, the bottom line is that a cookie-cutter siloed approach will not suffice. These principles need to be weaved into the bank's organizational structure such that all who need to contribute can do so, are motivated to do so, are held accountable for doing so, and have their efforts evaluated, reported out, and coordinated logically with all other contributors. For a more detailed review of these issues, please see my article in the February 2020 issue of the RMA Journal. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening to our podcasts. Whether you're a regular listener or a first-time listener, if you enjoy our podcasts, please provide a favorable rating on iTunes. Thank you.